this month's Journal Club podcast, uh, where we have a chat about the papers that caught our eye in the last month. Um, this week, I'm joined by Professor Peter Cameron, Academic Director at the Alfred Mercy and Trauma Centre, and David McCreary, Consultant in Mercy Medicine at the Alfred Mercy Trauma Centre, and Editor-in-Chief of this podcast, and provider of this lovely new microphone, which will make everyone's life a bit easier. Thanks for taking part, guys. Um, this month, we've got four great papers, which sparked a bit of discussion, so let's get cracking. Paper one. The first paper we have was a paper which, which was published in the BMJ by Michelle Angus et al. And concerns called equinus syndrome and what clinical features in patients with back pain make its diagnosis more likely. So the title, uh, Determination of Patients Presenting with Atraumatic Back Pain. This is a four-year retrospective cohort analysis within a tertiary referral neuroscience centre. Uh, as we've mentioned, the objective of the study was to evaluate the accuracy of individual clinical features in a large cohort of ED patients with atraumatic back pain and reference standard imaging for the diagnosis of cauda coronary compression. This is a retrospective review of cases from 2014 to 2018. It was undertaken in the largest tertiary spinal referral centre in the UK. And data on signs and symptoms in 996 patients with suspected cauda kind of compression referred for definitive MRI over a four-year study period were extracted and compared against the final reference standard diagnosis. So in terms of results, 111 patients were identified with radiological evidence of cauda quina within the cohort referred for definitive imaging, of whom 109 underwent operative intervention. And patients with cauda quina compression were more likely to present with bilateral leg pain, dermatomal sensory loss, and bilateral absent ankle or ankle and knee jerks. No relationship between DRE and final diagnosis of cauda quina compression. So the author's conclusion uh, was the factors independently associated with the diagnosis of cauda equina on MRI included bilateral leg pain and dermatomal sensory loss. Loss of lower limb reflexes was strongly suggestive of cauda equina syndrome. And the findings raised questions about the diagnostic utility of invasive digital rectal examination. So um, in terms of our own journal, this is a, it's an important study which surrounds a very common presentation. Dave, your thoughts on this? Were you hopeful that this paper would answer all your quality concerns? Well, yeah, I mean, it's obviously, it's our bread and butter, back pain, query, cauda equina. And I think that's, you know, you've probably seen one or two of those per shift for your entire career so far. Um, so it was nice. I think it's nice to see someone um, trying to give us more uh, robust yeah, they, they, answers. They, they, they always on. present the most at the, the wrong time as well. <laughs> you mean you don't get, you can't get an MRI scan at three in the morning? No. Um, so it's nice to see somebody, you know, them doing some work on this to try and give us a bit more firm advice on what um, what signs and symptoms might be more useful. Because if, I think any emergency clinician listening to this will have had the conversation with orthopedics or spinal or neuro or whoever covers it in your your uh, organization about trying to convince them, you know, I've got this patient that I'm concerned about, or trying to convince a consultant radiologist that you need an urgent MRI. And it's, it's so it'd be useful if we could have some more um something more in our armamentarium for dealing with this this probably doesn't quite cover that and i'm sure peter has even stronger opinions on that as i'm sure we'll find out shortly because obviously they're looking they're they're starting from the gold standard they're starting from you know they know the patients had cauda equina and then they're looking back and seeing what was you know what things they found and, and what the patients had but i think that's somewhere that you have to start and and i think that's what they did here and so they they've given us some um some useful information. I don't think it's necessarily going to be practice changing, um, or at least not immediately so. But there's, you know, there's some useful information. They they show us what are maybe more uh, profound red flags than than others, and then they 
put this nice question mark over the digital rectal exam that was a big discussion point in Journal Club as well. And Peter, I did mention there was a few weaknesses here. Um, where does this paper fall down for you? Yeah, I, I think the point is that they've started at the end, whereas as emergency physicians, we start at the start. And um, so when you're in fast track and you see some guy with a traumatic back pain, uh, you've got thousands of them and then you've got one guy who's got quarter equina. So the question is how you find the needle in the haystack. There's a number of issues with this paper. They, they actually excluded all the interesting patients. So they only included lumbar. They excluded infection, trauma and malignancy. Now, they're the three things that I really worry me and, and, and look, you know, doing Medico legal reports, they're the three things that we miss in amongst all the hay. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, it is, an, you know, like it's, it's a very select group of patients. The other thing to remember, this was those that were referred to an MRI in a, a regional centre. So they've been referred from all over the place to the regional centre and finally, we've uh, organised an MRI. So all those doctors out there looking at people with back pain, they, they've seen thousands of people, and then we've got this small group. So that's, that's always dangerous when you're trying to make decision rules around who you should image or treat or whatever. Um, so they've got 111 patients with quarter equina. Now, if you look at the, the things they've come up with, Bilateral leg pain. I reckon I've seen quite a lot of people with bilateral leg pain who haven't got quarter equina. I reckon I've seen even more with dermatomal sensory loss due to their, uh, you know, L1 nerve root or whatever. Um, you know, what, like, I, I know they've got a, a, a small uh, disc protrusion pressing on that L1. Does that mean they've got quarter equina? And then, um, there was a univariate association with um, with weakness, which fell out when they did multivariate. And then there's this bilateral absent ankle jerks, um, which, you know, you get fat people and people who are got peripheral neuropathies and all sorts of things. You know, like you look at the, the great unwashed that turn up in fast track and you think, eh, ankle jerks. Um, and so... Yes, they're all things that, um, you know, would push you a bit further one way or the other, but it's not all that, uh, you know, sort of useful in my mind. Um, I guess reaffirming that rectal examinations are probably a waste of time unless you're looking for a rectal cancer uh, is, is fine. Um, but where do we go with this? One other minor thing, this is not the BMJ. This is the uh, Emergency Medicine Journal published by the BMJ. So it's a fairly low-ranked journal, um, and it's probably that way because of the methodology. I hate to be see, harsh. See, yeah, maybe it's just Peter's more cynical than me, but I, I think this is – any evidence, as long as you're using it right, is – useful and i think they've actually you know they've done a, a really good effort because if they'd done it the other way around we'd be complaining that they the numbers were too diluted by just looking at back pain patients and there weren't enough gold standard diagnosis or we'd be saying that they included the you know the the cancers and the the traumas and that and what we're interested in is our 
a traumatic back pain because they're, they're i think the the query cancers and the query infections they're probably a little bit easier because they've already pushed your dial your pretest probability has already gone up high enough that you want to um investigate them more i think are are just a traumatic back pains are are the ones that we're more worried about but i suppose the question is did they exclude these ones after the mri had found those findings and you know they if they were excluded after the fact then yeah that's 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 an issue but i still think you know this is just they're giving us some things that should push your needle a bit further towards investigation or at least that's how i i view it um rather than saying you know oh well they don't have uh, they don't have bilateral um leg pain they don't have sensory loss and this so it's definitely not caught equina but if they've got those things it just should make you consider it a little bit more carefully and i think i think bilateral symptoms true bilateral symptoms like uh bilateral sciatica or, or bilateral sensory or motor loss they i mean any of us are going to do be scanning those patients anyway i think if they got uh, bilateral leg weakness with sensory loss, you're going to do an MRI. Um, you know, they're the easy ones. It's the people with nondescript sort of um, symptoms, uh, which are very common in this, you know, this group. And as I say, the main, the main medico-legal problems we have are actually with the, um, with the missed infections and missed cancers, um, and and it would be interesting. It's not clear from the article whether it was the um, uh, a retrospective exclusion or a prospective exclusion of people with those um, problems. But, um, yeah. There was one other little bit that I I find useful in it as well. So they 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 mentioned it just when they were looking at their bladder imaging and the the use of residual volume um, after micturition. Um, I think that's actually a really useful uh, clinical finding, and I I do it in patients that I'm suspicious of, but it's maybe something we should do a bit more regularly because a bladder scan is actually really easy to do, and you can then again something else that might push your needle one way or the other is whether they've got the complete um, voiding because that might be one of those early early signs it's easy for us to pick up it's low-hanging fruit so it's just it was just it was buried in the paper it wasn't mentioned lots in the the conclusion i just thought that was quite useful yeah again um you know old guys with prostates and so forth they're going to have some residual urine um but yeah if they've got a a young woman with residual um uh you know bladder volume or whatever uh is you know they're they're big red flags um Hmm. and Sometimes they can be quite subtle. So, uh, yeah, but I'm not going to do a bladder scan on every patient who comes in with back pain. But if, you know, you've got to get the biggest issue, I think, for us in, in fast track or wherever is, is getting to that threshold where you're actually suspicious. Once you're suspicious, then you usually do the right things. Everything to me is getting yourself more suspicious or less suspicious. If you can get yourself below that criteria where you don't need to do anything, you're done. If you get yourself above a criteria, then it's great. I can go hammer and tongs to get the, the investigation done. It's just trying to get yourself out of that gray area that's the problem. And this might help a little bit with that. Yeah, the brand or the brand presentations aren't the issue here. I thought I thought the key issue, the key message was the absence of perineal signs weren't the reason or should not be a reason not to perform an MRI scan. So trainees, clinicians should not solely rely on the presence or absence of clinical um, specific clinical symptoms throughout cardioquina. So it comes down to a constellation of findings to make the diagnosis more likely, which is probably what we're doing already. Like, you know, so it's not going to change practice massively, but in terms of DRE, I thought it was an interesting finding. Well, sorry, um, the perineal, see, I I don't do a PR, but I do test for perineal sensation. Um, and I ask them about it because I, I think that's 
a fairly specific finding um, and, and, you know, in, in a number of cases been quite useful. So I think we shouldn't confuse DRE with perineal uh, examination. In terms of anal tone? Not so much anal tone as just, uh, you know, basically S23 uh, sensory loss. Paper 2. The second paper we had to chat about was steroids in COVID. Um, this is a paper which was published in JAMA by Munchedal. So the title, Effective 12 milligrams versus 6 milligrams of dexamethasone on the number of days alive without life support in adults with COVID-19 and severe hypoxemia, the COVID steroid 2 randomized trial. Primary outcome. The primary outcome was the number of days alive without life support, uh, invasive, ment- uh, invasive mechanical ventilation, circulatory support, or kidney replacement therapy at 28 days after randomization. Secondary outcomes were the number of days alive without life support at 90 days, the number of days alive out of hospital at 90 days, mortality at 20 days and at 90 days, and the number of patients with one or more serious adverse reactions at 28 days. So that's where they're talking about new episodes of septic shock, invasive fungal infection, clinically important gastrointestinal bleeding or anaphylactic reaction. So their findings uh, in this randomized trial that included about a thousand patients with COVID-19 and severe hypoxemia treatment with 12 milligrams of DEX uh, resulted in 22 days alive without live support at 28 days compared with 20.5 days in those receiving six milligrams of DEX. That the difference was not statistically significant. Yeah, so I'll just uh, run through the secondary outcomes results quickly. Mortality at 28 days with 27.1% in the 12 milligrams of DEX group versus 32.3% in the six milligrams of DEX group. Uh, mortality at 90 days was 32.0% in the 12 milligrams of DEX group versus 37.7% in the 6 milligrams of DEX group. And serious adverse reactions, including septic shock and invasive fungal infections, they occurred in 11.3% in the 12 milligrams of DEX group versus 13.4% in the 6 milligrams of DEX group. All of those confidence intervals crossed one here, indicating no difference between the groups. So the author's conclusion, among patients with COVID-19 and severe hypoxemia, 12 milligrams of DEX compared with 6 milligrams of DEX did not result in statistically significant more days alive without life support at 28 days. However, the trial here may have been underpowered to identify a significant difference. So they've an unlikely band of countries here, Denmark, Sweden, India and Switzerland. No significant findings are likely changed to our practice. And further confirmation, we're probably doing the right thing for our patients. Did you take anything from this paper? Yeah, and I mean, I know Peter's quite hardline when it comes to trends versus it is or it isn't significant. So again, I look forward to uh, battle commencing. But certainly, <laughs> a lot of a lot of the numbers there they're very much trending towards a benefit of twelve milligrams of dex. Um, now, we one of the things we did discuss in the journal club is that they're a slightly different cohort to what we have at the Alfred in terms of who we're giving steroids to. I think the main thing being that these patients were on 10 liters or more um, oxygen before they were getting the steroids, whereas we give it to, correct me if I'm wrong, anybody with an oxygen requirement. So it's slightly different. And so it's not necessarily directly applicable to, to our practice because of that, but certainly a lot of the trends there are, you know, the, the, um, the confidence interval literally touches zero. So worst case scenario is there's, zero difference but it's more likely that there's some difference in their primary outcome and their secondary outcomes all trended towards the the decks as well and when it comes to applying something that's just identified from a a trend that might just be under par study i kind of look at the how risky the treatment is and 
it's 12 milligrams of dex versus six. It's probably not that dangerous a thing to do. It's not an expensive thing to do. So there's maybe room for it. What I couldn't understand and what I would, you know, like the clever person on the call to to tell me about is why the 12 milligrams had a lower incidence of serious adverse events. Peter's trying to work out who I think the more clever person on the call is. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I, this is an interesting study in that uh, there's biologic plausibility for a higher dose, you know, in terms of maxing out the receptors and so forth. Um, the primary outcome, I think, is a good one uh, and is used more and more in intensive care studies, days um, alive without life support uh, at 28 days or 90 days. Um, the biggest issue, as Dave's alluded to, is the power of the study. Um, I mean, a 15% reduction, which is effectively about a 5% absolute reduction, is quite significant. Um, you know, like if you're, you happen to be one of those uh, patients and, you know, you've got a 30% versus a 35%, uh, I'd take the extra steroid, um, especially as Dave's implying that the side effect profile doesn't seem to be worse. It may, may even be better. Um, but there were, you know, there, there are other issues as well. The groups, there were, were between group differences. And the other thing I think that uh, Dave didn't discuss was the um, the use of other agents like the MABs and the NIBs and so forth. So there's a significant number of people who actually got other disease-modifying drugs, which may have impacted on the... Uh, effectiveness, in inverted commas, of the steroid. So um, it's a pity they just didn't go that extra couple of yards and make it a fifteen hundred person study or whatever, and uh, and 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 power it a little bit better because um, uh, we're sort of left with a, a feeling of uh, you know sort of uh, early withdrawal. It's um, uh, it's 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 not a good. Um, feeling. So um, I, you know, if, if I was the patient, would I have the extra 12? Um, I, I think it's just an inconclusive study. I, I would have to go back to the, as Dave says, the harm and the biologic plausibility. This study doesn't actually answer the question of a small difference. It does answer the question of a big difference. How does that sound? Just on yeah, that that sounds pretty clever. <laughs> it's almost like you do this for a job or something. Um, the the one thing that we, when we're talking about it being underpowered, am I correct in saying that they didn't actually even meet their uh, target, their sample size target? I think they were shy by twenty seven or twenty eight yeah, patients. Yeah, a thousand patients and nine eighty two were included. Yeah, so it's you wonder when they're that close like they're not even under par they're just under recruited because those 28 patients i haven't actually worked out the fragility index for it i'd like to sit down and do the the sums to see how many patients would have to flip to the other side to get you this this significant but i imagine it's not that that many uh, it's just unfortunate and you say it'd be great if they could have had 1500 patients but they didn't manage to achieve a thousand so um yeah i think that's that's the issue here or at least one of the one of the issues I mean, it's interesting. It's a Danish study, but they had 12 sites in India, for example, which I, I think is uh, interesting as well. Hmm. There's not many studies you get across the hemispheres. Um, just in terms of the, how the trial was conducted, it seemed to have like, great external validity in terms of like, it was conducted across two different continents. 
there's good blinding uh, allocation but seeing a good follow-up rate etc for good internal validity the only thing I found was DEX wasn't used at all sites he's better met at some um, at a few hospitals in Sweden like what do you think of that in terms of like in ter- uh, the study protocol or methodology does it affect results much like they're like we can open so I don't know much about better methazone. I've never, I haven't used used it, uh, but um, I, I'll take their word for it. It's a, a biologic equivalent. I, I haven't tested that though. I haven't used it nebulized in kids with croup years ago. <laughs> I've never, never given it to someone IV or, or oral. Okay, uh, great. Uh, thanks very much, guys. Paper three. The third paper then uh, comes from JAMA uh, by Anderson et al. So this paper, uh, the title was Effect of Vasopressin and Methylprednisolone versus Placebo on Return of Spontaneous Circulation in Patients with In-Hospital Cardiac Arrest, a Randomised Clinical Trial. Um, so the question was, does the combination of vasopressin and methylpred administered during in-hospital cardiac arrest improve return of spontaneous circulation? So this was a multi-centred, randomised, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial conducted at 10 hospitals in Denmark. So a total of 512 adult patients and with in-hospital cardiac arrest were included between October 15, 2018 and January 21, 20, uh, 2021. So patients were randomised to receive a combination of vasopressin and methylpred or placebo. And the first dose of vasopressin and methylpred or corresponding placebo was administered after the first dose of uh, epinephrine. And then additional doses of vasopressin or corresponding placebo were administered after each additional dose of epinephrine for a maximum of four doses. And the primary outcome here was the return of spontaneous circulation and the secondary outcome uh, includes survival and favorable neurological outcomes in 30 days. So their findings, um, 501 patients with in-hospital cardiac arrest were included and the proportion of patients with, who received or who achieved return of spontaneous circulation was 42% in the vasopressin and methylpreg group and 33% in the placebo group. So the author's conclusion among patients with in-hospital cardiac arrest, administration of vasopressin and methylprednisone compared with placebo significantly increased the likelihood of return of spontaneous circulation, but it's uncertain whether this is a, there is benefit or a harm for long-term survival. Um, so, Peter, these were in-hospital arrests, and so not necessarily our bag, and they're different beasts altogether. There was concerns raised at the Journal Club about the primary outcome, that it wasn't necessarily patient-centred in terms of ROSC and not necessarily, and the secondary outcome was only neurological uh, outcome. What did you what do you think of that? Yeah, it's an interesting study. I mean, it, it's hard. In-hospital cardiac arrest is so different to out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. I think one of the things that I hadn't first I hadn't appreciated when I first read this was that only 10% of the cases were VFVT. So, you know, shockable rhythms. Um, and we know that non-shockable rhythms, PEA, it's more about, and, and, and asystole, it's more about what the underlying problem is. Is it septic shock? Is it hemorrhagic shock? Is it, um, uh, you know, uh, some lung disease, uh, you know, with uh, hypoxia? So, um, you know, in terms of understanding what the underlying issue is, uh, we don't really have, they tell us what the overall sort of class is, but we don't really have a good understanding of that sort of 24 hours before they went into cardiac arrest and and what the underlying mechanism for the cardiac arrest was. Whereas when you've got a shockable rhythm, it's usually, you know, the, the artery blocks off, the heart goes into fibrillation, and then you get a shower of um, uh, 
reactions around the body and you uh, plus or minus um, hopefully a defib and they get better. So it's a, it, the whole mechanism is completely different. And, 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 and this is one of the problems with cardiac arrest research at the moment is, is we're talking about cardiac arrest as a single entity. And yet if you take out shockable and put that to one side, the rest are really, you know, how do you manage septic shock? How do you manage hypoxia? These sorts of things, which are, you know, like, so uh, we already know that uh, steroids in septic shock have a checkered career um, and, uh, and, and, you know, but steroids, say, in hypoxia due to lung disease might actually uh, improve outcomes, um, you know, especially if they've got uh, asthma. So getting back to the point, um, the primary outcome of ROSC, um, this, this primary outcome uh, has been seen before in quite a number of pre-hospital cardiac arrest studies, so the amiodarone studies, the uh, high-dose adrenaline studies uh, going back sort of 20 years. And um, the, what we found was it was great in terms of getting people to the point uh, of getting a, a circulation, but it did, didn't result in improvement in, in um, outcomes leaving hospital, probably because the underlying uh mechanism or uh behind the arrest wasn't resolved um but we we don't know that so i guess as as you said um rosk uh is interesting but it, it's not going to change my practice uh the 30 day outcomes uh will um so i guess this is another negative cardiac arrest study but as i said with all the limitations of uh, in-hospital cardiac arrest and uh, non-shockable cardiac arrest and what relevance that has, say, to um, out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Uh, there's a guy, Spiros Menzolopoulos from Greece, who's studied steroids uh, ad nauseum and it's probably the world expert on this. Um, and his most recent work suggests that the steroids... Um, probably don't make a difference. But again, with the same group of in-hospital cardiac arrests. So it, it's an interesting area, but at this point, it's not going to change practice. So I think the first thing, though, hats off to them, because I think doing any cardiac arrest study is difficult. Doing an in-hospital cardiac arrest study involving ward-based care and all that, even more difficult. You know, I, I, I think so. Hats off to them for that. And, and my first reaction in the Journal Club as well was... <laughs> Do do we really care about ROSC? Because that's not really what we're we're looking at. But then when I took another look at it, it's like the the par involved if you want to look at survival is ridiculous. So they they had what five hundred patients. Yeah, five hundred. Um, five hundred patients. The Paramedic Two study in the UK, which was the pre-hospital adrenaline versus placebo, that was eight thousand patients because they were looking for a thirty-day mortality benefit, and that's because ROSC is more common than thirty-day survival in cardiac arrest. And so, you know, if you're going to do a study, you have to still do the study that you can do, and I think that that you know you have to take that into consideration. And if it's going to be hypothesis generating and a place to start, then yes, looking at ROSC is fair enough, as long as it doesn't then do what adrenaline did when they noticed an improvement in ROSC, you know, 30, 40 years ago, and that's make it into the guidelines because then you can't do any more 
study or it's a lot harder to do more study. So certainly this this is kind of showing, yeah, there might be some area for it, but there's so many other unanswered questions. Like Peter says, you've got so many different subgroups, the different types of arrest, the different types of patients, different settings, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so this is a starting point. It's certainly not practice changing and they need to pick apart. Is it the vasopressin? Is it the methylpred? Is it the, the PEAs? Is it the asystoles? Is it the hypoxics? Is it, you know, there's so many other questions and I would like those questions to be slowly answered rather than the next resuscitation guidelines saying, Hey, this improves ROS just like adrenaline improves ROS. So give them the kitchen sink, give them everything. And then, then you're stuck because you're trying to undo it. Okay, great. So we're just going to move on to our final paper. Paper four. Our last paper was about predicting PE in pregnancy. This was a study which was published in Journal of Thrombosis and Hemostasis by Robert Abadi et al. Um, so the title of this paper was Assessing the Clinical Probability of Pulmonary Embolism During Pregnancy, the Pregnancy Adapted Geneva Score. So um, the objective here, to propose a new version of the Geneva score adapted to pregnant women with suspected PE. So in terms of the methodology, the authors used data from a previous study, which was from a multi-center perspective management outcome study with 395 women with suspected PE, in whom pretest probability was assessed using the Geneva score. They removed items which were present in none of the patients, so cancer and age over 65 years. Uh, rock curve analysis was then performed for quantitative variables. The, uh, the obtained pregnancy adapted Geneva score um, or the PAG score uh, com comprised seven items, including an age as 40 years or older and a heart rate of over 110 beats per minute. In terms of findings, uh, the pregnancy adapted Geneva score showed a high discriminative power to identify patients with a low intermediate or high pretest probability associated with increasing prevalence of PE. The rock curve uh, showed uh, an area under the cover of 0.795 for the PAG score compared to 0.684 for the Geneva score. And the authors concluded that in pregnant women with suspected PE, the PAGAC score shows a high discriminative power to identify patients with low intermediate or high pretest probability. It has the strength of being a fully objective decision rule, is clinically relevant, easy to compute, and should now be tested in a prospective outcome study. Um, so this score to patients, it's always a challenge. It's always a challenge, and we're always looking for ways to constantly assess the likelihood of PE. Um, so it's an important area of study. Peter, in General Club, the absence of clinical gestalt was noticed from the scoring system. Is this something that you would have liked to see in this particular adapted score? Yeah, it's good. If I mean, I, I like prospective studies for these clinical decision rules. The problem is they had like um, eight years, 11 hospitals over two countries, and they've got 400 women. So getting to the point where you, like, you can imagine how many uh, forms you would have had to fill out over <clears throat> how many years to get uh, get something. Um, but um, so, yeah, I, it would be nice to know, like, you know, a senior clinician's opinion versus any sort of score. It usually turns out that a senior clinician does better than any score. Um, so the, I guess the reason we have these scores is a sort of guardrails, especially for juniors, uh, you know, and especially at night and whatever else. Um, so um, at the end of the day, they had like 28 out of 395 patients positive for PE. Um, so, so the whole paper is based on 28 patients um, over, you know, eight years in 11 hospitals. Um it's it's sort of it's it's interesting. Um, 
in saying all that, I think there's some good points. Um, you know, like clearly uh, the Geneva score, for example, age greater than 65 and cancer weren't present. So just wipe that out. But what's important, one of the important things they showed was that the more than 40 years appeared to be useful. So age is still, and, and it's a thing as a clinician, you you know that older people are more likely to have PE. So that, that sort of fits in. Um, and, you know, like at the end of the day, a persistent tachycardia, signs of a DVT, uh, persistent tachypnea, these are things that would worry any clinician. Um, and so I don't know that we need a score, um, but these signs are really quite important in teasing out these difficult cases. And, and I think the other thing that was sort of buried in amongst the, the, the writing, but you know, you don't have to do a CTPA if they've got a DVT. And uh, a significant number of them had a DVT, which means, you know, like you just stop there, um, uh, which is good. Our, our um, protocol at the Alfred involves doing a perfusion, not a ventilation perfusion, a perfusion scan in, uh, in, those, uh, in these cases um, to lessen the radiation. Um, and, again, uh, you know, it's not as sensitive as a CTPA, but the point is if it's that small, it probably doesn't matter anyway. Um, so, again, slight differences in practice. Um, so, I, I mean, it's sort of an interesting study, but it probably wouldn't alter um, my practice. It may be helpful in terms of just confirming um, some guardrails for a junior in terms of, you know, what, you know, like, you should never ignore persistent tachycardia. You shouldn't, uh, I mean, obviously, if they're hypoxic or something, that's relatively easy. But, um, and, and, you know, you can do, easily do a compression ultrasound. Um, you know, these are things that are, um, are red flags and uh, easy, uh, um, easy uh, guides uh, for someone to do in the emergency department, even after hours. Dave, fair warning. Um, this question is about D dimers, um, and it was raised at Journal Club. I think you had a bit of a rant about it yourself. The other day, the D dimers. I had a rant. <laughs> that doesn't sound like you me went, at all. You went off on one anyway. The other state, the D dimer was negative uh, more often, say in the first, second, and the third trimester, um, but was still clinically useful. And they ruled out disease in about eleven point seven percent of the patients. It's not great, but it's not nothing. Discuss. So, I'm trying to remember exactly what my rant was on the day because I've got many D-dimer rants. I think the the thing with D-dimer in pregnancy, it actually is, that, well, D-dimer in general, so we're going to go to my D-dimer rant in general. It's actually a really good test. D-dimer itself is a really good test. It's the doctors that are crap. And we need to learn how to use not necessarily this score, but all the other scores and, and our clinical gestalt in whatever way we want to decide whether or not we want to do the D-dimer. I think that's the thing. As if the D-dimer is the thing between you and doing a scan, and that's the only thing between you and doing a scan, that's when the D-dimer should be done. And that's what it's for. And I think with it, there's definitely trends towards us using it for pregnant women as long as you know what you're doing. And there's several studies that that look at using it in a variety of different ways, whether it's the years study or whether it's some of the trimester adjusted D-dimer stuff that I think Jeff Klein had done. And so you can apply it to pregnancy because a negative result is helpful to you. It's, you know, so there's definitely a, a, a place for it. Um, 
and it's it's whether or not you can apply it using this study. I think there was there was a couple of comments aside from my D dimer rant. There was a couple of comments I had on on this study. I think actually it's actually really well written. If nothing else, like it, they actually describe their process of coming up with this score really really well. And if you've not previously read a clinical decision aid forming kind of study, it's actually really worth a read for that and the way they they compare it to the previous stuff and the way they they clearly mark out their logistics. I think it's it's good from a, a geeky medical writing side of thing. It's worth a, a read. Um, and just on Peter's comment about the number of uh, uh, PEs that they found, I mean, it's that's kind of what we get in these pregnancy papers because we were talking about how difficult it is to study cardiac arrest before studying pregnancy really difficult as well, particularly when you're looking for this gold standard diagnosis. And actually the pregnancy adjusted years one from the New England Journal, they only had 20 patients with a positive PE finding. And again, it's not, it wasn't necessarily a practice changing one, but it got an awful lot of um, traction. And it is something that I would use in the right patient, or at least to, to, to guide decision-making with a patient. Um, so that was based on very few positives as well. You just kind of have to take it into consideration about how the study was done. Is, is it applicable to your your um, normal patient cohort? I think this one isn't directly applicable, um, but I think there's that it needs a prospective uh, validation study so that we can see how useful it is. And and but that's going to be difficult to do because pregnant patients are are difficult to difficult to study. I'm with Peter though in that it's there's more to it than these decision rules you you should be able to use your own gestalt and and see that but these that's not these papers aren't being written for the peter camerons of the world they're being written for the new ed reg who's still finding their feet still developing their gestalt and the good thing about the geneva score and then this adaption of the geneva score is that it doesn't rely on that it's a very objective measure whereas the wells criteria and even the perk rule etc they all rely on clinical gestalt to to say whether something's low risk or not um, and so if you want to take that out of the equation have a very objective thing to document this sort of score has potential there, I got away from my D-dimer rant and gave you something else as well. Great. Uh, just in terms of like the refresher for um, trainees coming through, it was um, receiver operating characteristic. It's a useful tool for evaluating the performance of diagnostic tests and more generally for evaluating the accuracy of a statistical model. And then the area under the curve is an overall summary of diagnostic accuracy. So when in the area under the curve equals 0 0.5, when the rock curve corresponds to random chance and one for perfect accuracy. So in rare occasions, the estimated area under the curve is less than 0.5, indicating that the test does worse than chance. Um, so with this area under cover 0.795 compared to uh, 0.684, it's not great, but it's it's better. Well, point I the way the point I just regard it as good. Um, yeah. you know, that's that's category. Um, uh, but in reality, it's when you're dealing with you know 20 people coming in a day with chest pain, um, it, it it does mean you're gonna miss a few. Um, so, um, uh, and, and, you know, you only have to miss one to be a bad doctor. So, it, it, you know, like personally, um, I mean, you know, rock curve with an area, you know, rock with an area under the curve of 0.8 or 0.85 is nice, but it's sort of like, you know, the temperature, you've got to put it in the context uh, and, and think about what, the, you know, just because it's good, in inverted commas, doesn't mean that it rules it in or rules it out. 
Yeah. I think the, the, the first of all, the way I think of rock versus the area under the curve when you're reading it in papers, rock is kind of telling me how good this test is that they're assessing. And then the area under the curve is good for comparing different tests. That's kind of the way I look at it. But also with the rock, they're, they're generally the rock is just giving you the point where sensitivity and specificity balance out the best. But then when you're applying it into clinical practice and when you're deciding how to use the test, you can then go up the curve and you can use it to decide your sensitivity cutoff mark and you trade off your specificity for that. So that's where it's quite useful as well. And again, if you've not really read much into those, the sort of early D-dimer studies are very a very good way to get your head around that. Because if you look at the rock curve for um, D-dimer, that's not where our cutoff is to get to that less than 2% chance of a, a VTE. You go right up the curve to to a higher point where the sensitivity drops down to, or the specificity drops down to like 56% or thereabouts. So that's the way I think of rock. And I, it, you know, it's just something to get your head around whenever you're reading these papers. Okay. Thanks very much for your comments for today, guys. Um, that was really good. We're going to wrap it up there and thanks for listening. Uh, we'll see you all next month at next month's journal. Thanks, Shane. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you.